You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatley in New York, and we begin with an appeal to the world for help. The last Ukrainian soldiers in Mariupol sheltering in a steel plant surrounded by Russian forces say they may only have hours left. Adamant that they will not give in and allowing another deadline for surrender to expire two hours ago. Hundreds of civilians are taking refuge in the basement of a plant which lies in ruins. A police official says food and water supplies are dwindling and they're under heavy bombardment. The commander of Ukrainian forces there sent this message. This is our statement to the world. It may be our last statement. We might have only a few days or even hours left. The enemy's units are 10 times larger than ours. They have supremacy in the air, artillery, and units that are dislocated on the ground, equipment, and tanks. We appeal to the world leaders to help us. Meanwhile, Ukraine's deputy prime minister says an agreement has been reached with Russia on a humanitarian corridor to evacuate women, children, and the elderly from Mariupol. We're closely watching to see whether this agreement holds. Now from the south over to the east and a surge of fighting in the Donbass region. British intelligence claims Ukrainian forces there have managed to repel the Russian advance numerous times despite intense shelling. While in Zaporizhia, the regional council says it's fighting a Russian attack and again seeing more shells. Meanwhile, in the capital, Kyiv, Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, has arrived for talks with President Zelensky. He said history will not forget the war crimes committed in Ukraine. And we are expecting to hear from them both, and we will bring that to you live the moment it happens. For now, Matt Rivers has the latest. Well, Julia, we are watching with earnest what is happening in the southern city of Mariupol, where the big news today, as uh, that city remains besieged by Russian forces, that it does appear that Russia and Ukraine have agreed upon a humanitarian corridor. Now, that corridor uh, would be used for citizens of Mariupol to evacuate. That corridor was supposed to open up around 2 p.m., local time. Now, it's very difficult to get verifiable independent information out of Mariupol because of how difficult uh, it is to talk to people given the lack of internet service, the lack of communications infrastructure. But uh, according to the latest information, that humanitarian corridor uh, is open according to the city's mayor. He is saying that he is urging citizens of Mariupol to meet at a certain location in that city and then leave. Eventually, they would make their way to the city of Zaporizhia, uh, which he says citizens will be safe if they go through this corridor. There is a lot of apprehension, though, given uh, accusations that we have heard against the Russians in the past. They do not respect the sanctity of humanitarian corridors. Many people have been fe fearful of leaving that city because they're not totally convinced that the Russians would treat them uh, with the kind of humanitarian care uh, that they say they will. So we're going to be monitoring that situation throughout the day. But what we do know is that the center of resistance in that city remains the Azostal steel plant. Uh, that is the area where we know that the remaining Ukra Ukrainian resistance fighters in and around that steel plant have hunkered down, continue to fight with Russian forces. There are also citizens, uh, hundreds of people, we're told, according to officials in Ukraine, that are also inside that steel plant, basically alongside uh, those fighters. Yesterday, we heard CNN spoke directly to the Marine commander uh, in Ukraine, um, uh, in that steel plant, the, the man commanding the Marines there. He said that they have days, if not hours, left. He was very, very clear about the dire situation there, 
calling on a third-party country to begin evacuations, basically saying that people in that plant don't necessarily trust the Russians to allow them to leave safely. He is calling on another country, say Turkey or the United States, to provide some sort of evacuation route for the people that remain in that plant. No word if that is going to happen, but that is the call that people inside that plant are making right now, Julia, a dire situation, but one that is evolving as we speak. Matt Rivers there. And on to Kremlin criticism. Billionaire Oleg Tinkov, one of Russia's most well-known businessmen, is strongly denouncing Russia's invasion of Ukraine and urging the West to do more to, quote, stop this massacre. CNN's Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, we had friend of Alexei Navalny and the executive director of Russia's Anti-Corruption Foundation on earlier this week. And he says, said that there has to be a way back for some of these sanctioned businessmen, these oligarchs. If they denounce the regime and they denounce the war, there has to be a way back from the sanctions. And it does seem to be, at least as far as the denouncing is concerned, that's what Tinkoff's doing. He is. He's also talking about a way back for President Putin. He's incredibly critical of Putin, scathing in a way that no um, oligarch currently in the orbit of, of President Putin has been so far, calling the war insane, saying that there's a terrible army, that the generals are waking up from hangovers, realizing this, that uh, an era, and this is where the criticism becomes very direct uh, of President Putin and the, and the failure of the army by saying this sort of era of civility and groveling and nepotism is what's led across the country, is what's led to the, the fact that the army can't fight and, and that they're making losses. So really is laying this right at the feet of, of President Putin and criticizing uh, the civil servants who work in the Kremlin saying that they're in shock, that their children can't go and holiday on the uh, French Riviera. It's not clear if he's talking about uh, the Kremlin spokesman there or the Russian foreign minister, but uh, these are certainly men whose, whose children, stepchildren, travel around Europe. So he's taking a real aim at the top, at the second level, um, but at the same time, as I say, sort of trying to find a way out for Putin, saying that the West should find a face-saving way out for President Putin, which I think really gets to the core issue here that this is all about President Putin. Tinkoff understands this. It's not about anyone else. Putin uh, is stuck, if you will, in this, in this war that he created, on this narrative that he created. Um, but it's not clear that Putin is going to listen or precisely what he'll do to try to silence Tinkoff. This is not the sort of message that Putin wants spreading around Russia right now. Yeah, and you pulled out the two quotes that I saw as well. In a country riddled with corruption, nepotism, sycophancy and civility, how can the military be effective? And to your point, dear Collective West, please give Mr Putin an exit to save his face and stop this massacre. Please be more rational and humane. Nick, you've said this all the way along. There needs to be an off-ramp. There needs to be a way for President Putin to say, I've got some kind of victory and I've succeeded here. And he's pointing to that too. What does that look like at this stage and, and how does the West provide it? Should they provide it? Um, it's, it's going to be very difficult. The, the, the issue of war crimes and allegations against President Putin and, and his forces are stacking up. Uh, there are investigators right now. The European Union, uh, European uh, Council president is in Kiev right now talking about how the European Union can support in the investigation of war crimes, amongst other things. 
as that evidence mounts up, it's very hard to see an international community currently backing uh, Ukraine humanitarian, in a humanitarian way, economically, militarily, is going to step back from what Ukraine demands, which is that Russia should get off its territory, that, that their forces should go back to pre-February 24th positions. So as long as President Putin continues that level of aggression that's underway right now and his forces um, dispersed in, in parts of Ukraine where they never were before, it's hard to see how anyone in the international community could find a face-saving way for President Putin that didn't look like appeasement. That's going to be tough. So the move, it seems, is also going to have to come from within Russia, from people like um, like this, this oligarch and others um, to convince Putin that he also has to do something. It can't all come from the West. And that's the key. Nick Robertson in Brussels for us there. Thank you so much, as always. Now to China, where officials are urging people to continue to take PCR tests in Shanghai. This, as some residents are now refusing to take the COVID tests after nearly three weeks of strict lockdowns. David Culver joins us, David, and it's an experience that you continue to have yourself as well. And, and you also touched upon this with us last week, saying that if you're not going out, perhaps the only time you could catch COVID is when you're queuing up to get that PCR test. Right. So you would understand why people are, are nervous, reluctant, scared even. And tired, Julia. I mean, this has been relentless testing that they have now gone through day after day. You know, we've been experiencing it just a couple of hours ago. A knock at the door, you have to drop everything, you get your test. And then you're waiting anxiously. You're waiting several hours for those results to be posted. I think people are just tired of the uncertainty. They're tired of the mismanagement. And, And you have to realize that while this has been going on in the strict form of a lockdown for roughly three weeks or a bit longer, the rolling lockdowns as a whole here in Shanghai have been about five weeks. And including in my community, there have been times early on where they were locking us in our homes. So this has just been nonstop. And I think people are getting to the point where they're saying, how is it that we could have contracted it? Is it because the lockdown is not working? Is, is this an effective measure to keep this virus from spreading further? Or is it a failure altogether from the government? So there, there's a lot of pushback. You can feel that neighbors here are getting more and more uh, infuriated with each other, really. I mean, there's just short tempers and fuses, and it's only likely to continue if these tests continue that seem to be nonstop, Julia. Yeah, it's a catch-22, isn't it, for the authorities? They want to try and show that they're containing this, but at the same time, as you said, people are sick and tired of what the restrictions mean. David, there's also yeah. ongoing questions, and we talked about this last week as well, about about the data, about the classification of people that are perhaps right. dying of COVID versus dying of, of other things because the numbers don't seem to stack up. You and I were talking a lot two years plus ago uh, when the Wuhan outbreak was going on. And one of the biggest concerns at that time was that we were hearing from families about loved ones dying, the doctors telling them that they died from COVID-19, and yet those numbers weren't coming forward officially. Same thing here. We were hearing anecdotally, people sharing on social media. In fact, I would say much more vocal this time compared with two years ago because there was still a lot of mystery and uncertainty. But now people are determined to put it out there. And finally, over the past few days, the government has started to list some deaths. I think part of the 
complications for the government is they have to really show, one, that they, they want to be in control of this, that, that their measures are working, that it's effective. But at the same time, I think they've also realized if no one's dying from this, at least by the official count, Julia, then why all these extreme measures? So this is the balance that they're in the midst of right now. And officials are going around and they're rounding up in the next couple of days uh, anyone who's a positive case and a close contact. So you're talking about thousands more who will be brought into quarantine and isolation centers. And the goal for officials, and no doubt they'll reach this because they put out the numbers, uh, is that they want zero community spread in the next couple of days. And that means not zero cases altogether, but rather zero cases in the community. The cases that they want to see coming up now are from the quarantine and isolation centers. So that's where the numbers are going to be shifting. They say that will then allow them to lift and ease some of these lockdown measures. We'll see if that happens. Mm. David, as always, your framing of the challenge here is is brilliant and something doesn't add up. Uh, and clearly, to your point, something yeah. has to give Thank to you, Julia. David, hang in there, please. David Culver there. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Hong Kong's attempts to curb a current COVID-19 wave severely limiting air travel into the city. Rules require routes to being suspended for seven days if three or more passengers on an incoming flight test positive. As of today, 11 routes from 10 airlines have been temporarily cut off, including flights from both London and Amsterdam. CNN's Chrissy Lou Stout has more from Hong Kong. Here in Hong Kong, COVID-19 cases are falling, in-person learning has resumed, and some public spaces will reopen starting April 21. But air travel in and out of the city remains very difficult, as authorities have suspended some carriers' routes for seven days after they carried passengers who have tested positive for COVID-19 or had insufficient health documents. At least a dozen flight routes involving at least 11 airlines are banned, including flights from London, Tokyo and Singapore. This, according to Hong Kong authorities, affected airlines include Cathay Pacific, All Nippon Airways, Singapore Airlines, Qatar Airways, KLM Royal Dutch Airlines, Air India, Turkish Airlines, Ethiopian Airlines, Malaysia Airlines, Scoot and Emirates. On Tuesday and Wednesday, only a single flight came from outside the Asia-Pacific region. An Emirates flight landed on Tuesday, the first, after a seven-day ban on the carrier. But on Wednesday afternoon, Emirates was banned again. Now, the bans have added an extra layer of stress and anxiety for travelers. They're also further eroding Hong Kong's status as an international aviation and business hub. It's a tremendously stressful time. Um, and, you know, the volatility, the uncertainty... Those, those are the sorts of things that business hates. It just loves certainty. It loves a secure outlook. And, that's, and we've got anything but that at the moment for Hong Kong, sadly. In this third year of COVID-19, Hong Kong remains virtually cut off from the world and the cost of isolation is rising. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Okay, straight ahead. Oligarch opposition, Russia's richest, could turn against President Putin as Ukraine sanctions bite. We'll discuss with Putin arch enemy Bill Browder, a one-time believer in Russian reform, now turned fierce corruption fighter. He's up next. Welcome back. The IMF saying at its spring meetings this week that the Russian economy will contract by some 8.5% in 2022, driven lower by successive waves of Western sanctions. 
President Putin, however, painting a far more optimistic picture of how the country's faring, assuring citizens that sanctions have failed and vowing to ramp up spending to help those who have lost jobs since the Ukraine invasion began. And Moscow does actually have cash to spend. Estimates say some $800 million flows into its coffers each day from overseas energy sales. An EU ban on Russian energy imports would be a game changer in the West's economic war against Mr Putin. Western governments currently discussing further penalties too, with many arguing for fresh sanctions against oligarchs and their enablers. Russian billionaire Oleg Tinkov, the founder of sanctioned Tinkov Bank, is urging the West now to offer President Putin a dignified way out of what he calls an insane war that 90% of the country does not support. Bill Browder joins us now. He's the CEO and co-founder of Hermitage Capital Management, a firm that was once the largest foreign investor in Russia. He's also the author of best-selling book Red Notice and the new book Freezing Order, documenting his life as top target of President Putin. Bill, always great to have you on the show. Um, let's talk oligarchs first, because I feel up until now, it's been a policy choice of support and or silence. Do you see Tinkoff as a one-off or perhaps this could be the start of more of the wealthiest oligarchs in the country, perhaps breaking rank? Well, what you didn't hear in his statement um, is a criticism of of Vladimir Putin. He didn't say that Putin is a war criminal, that Putin uh, should stop this. He's just basically, um, it's it's a very timid statement, in my opinion. And if you go around and you sort of survey the oligarchs, they're all, you know, saying it's terrible what's happening, but they're not saying um, it's terrible that Russia has started a war to invade Ukraine. They're all afraid to say it. They're all afraid to criticize Putin. And the reason that they're afraid is because the oligarchs um, are, are could, can be wiped out in one second by a stroke of the pen by Vladimir Putin. They can go to jail, lose all their money and even get killed. And so I think the oligarchs are not going to be the solution to this problem. The oligarchs um, the the reason to sanction the oligarchs is quite simply because they're holding money for Putin and you don't want him to have access to that money. But these are not people who are going to determine the outcome of this conflict. I mean, you've long said tackle the oligarchs because that's where the wealth and the influence is. They fundamentally hold Putin's wealth, too. Why aren't more of them being sanctioned? You consistently point out on social media, it's just a fraction of the oligarchs out there that are known on lists. Forbes lists them regularly. Why haven't the United Kingdom, the EU and the United States sanctioned more oligarchs? What are they afraid of? Well, I, at this point, I don't think it's fear. <clears throat> they're, they're, they're definitely doing things that are what I would describe as fearless in terms of going after the biggest oligarchs. I think it's just a, it's a difficult process because they have to do it legally. They can't just arbitrarily sanction somebody who's on a Forbes list. They have to come up with, you know, real information that connects that person with the Putin regime one way or another, or they have to come up with information about somebody being involved in corruption. Based on on what I've seen most recently, about 32 oligarchs have been sanctioned by either the United States, um, the EU, the UK, Canada, or Australia. Um, out of 118 oligarchs. And so that's not terrible, but uh, there are 118 oligarchs. And so uh, I think that, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. It will probably happen as a result of more atrocities being committed. I think every time an atrocity is committed, uh, all these governments sort of get moving again and add more people to the sanctions list. I, I, I would have told you six weeks ago or eight weeks ago that it's all you know, the governments were timid. They don't want to rock the apple cart. They don't want to go after people who are 
bringing money into um, important economies. But I don't believe that's the case anymore. I think what, what we're seeing now is just pure, um, you know, bureaucracy and administrative um, uh, slowness as, as you know, different government officials have got to put their pen to paper and actually come up with proper evidence packages before they put these people on the sanctions list. Yeah, so it's just about getting the paperwork right. Um, we spoke to the head of um, Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption foundation, Vladimir Ashkov, earlier this week, and he said there should be a way back for the sanctioned oligarchs if they denounce the regime, if they denounce Putin, they might get relief from some of these sanctions. Based on what you were saying, Bill, earlier, do you think that works? Do you think that would work in getting some of these oligarchs <laughs> finally to criticise Putin himself, particularly if they did it en masse? <laughs> Well, I mean, I think it would be pretty exciting if they did. Um, I, I mean, and, and I, I kind of agree with him in the sense that, um, it, you know, in order to stay, in order not to get put on the sanctions list, there's a, a litmus test. Will an oligarch um, openly and and very brazenly um, criticize Putin and, and denounce the war and even uh, invest in, in helping uh, the West win this war? Um but I mean, I think it's it's sort of a nice thought. But I but I know the oligarchs, and and none of them are willing to do it. It's, I mean, it's so interesting to read their statements because they're all saying this is a terrible thing that's happening. But if you actually try to get them to say anything bad about Putin, they just refuse to say it. But what's the difference between them and you? Why are you willing to denounce Putin and and they're not? Well, um, I, I've never grown rich uh, off of being a partner with um, Vladimir Putin. I, um, my business in Russia was always criticizing Vladimir Putin, which is how I ended up in this terrible mess where um, I've become his number one foreign enemy. I've been threatened with death, with kidnapping. Um, I've been sentenced to 18 years in Russian prison in absentia. And um, so basically, I, I, I'm in a certain way the case study um, for why these people don't want to do. become me. They're all just tiptoeing around, trying, hoping that they don't become a Bill Browder so that they don't they can live comfortable lives in partnership with Vladimir Putin. I never, I chose a different path, uh, a much more dangerous path. I feel I can live with myself much better, um, uh, you know, being a, a critic of Putin and calling out the truth, but, um, but it's definitely uh, a more dangerous and more unpleasant day-to-day uh, -day life. Yeah, the consequences are... Uh, indescribable. There's a there's a moment that you do describe in your in your latest book. Um, you were in Colorado um, on holiday in 2018, and and President Trump at the time was in Helsinki with President Putin, and it was in a presser. And President Putin, and I always remember it, offered to exchange intelligence agents for you personally. And yeah. President Trump, I'm not sure whether he understood the situation. I don't want to talk about President Trump's role in this, but he described it as an incredible idea. Um, <laughs> I just wonder how you felt at that moment to go back to your point about the life that you've led and, and the fear, I think, that you've had to face. Well, I, I was sitting there and, and I wasn't even watching the summit, but my phone started blowing up with messages and, and I started looking at them and, and people were saying, you got to, you know, are you watching this right now? And I turned it on and I, I did got a replay and, and indeed Putin wanted to have me hand it over and, and, and Trump seemingly agreed. And I could have I imagined that a whole bunch of uh, blacked out U.S. government SUVs would be surrounding where I was staying and grabbing me and then driving me to some airfield where a government jet would take me back to Russia. And if I had been taken back to Russia for any reason, um, I would have been 
put in a Russian prison right away. I would have been tortured um, for some false confession, and then I would have been killed. And so it was a terrifying moment, and it took Trump four days to walk that um, back and, and say, no, we weren't going to cooperate. The U.S. wasn't going to cooperate with this. But um, it was terrifying, of course. The, the, the leader of the free world <laughs> seemingly agreeing to hand me over to the Russians to my death was a pretty bad moment. Yes, I can't even begin to imagine. But I think what we keep going back to in this conversation is fear. Uh, Tinkov saying that 90% of Russians are against this war, but there's a, a level of, of degree of fear. You're saying that the oligarchs won't stand against Putin because they're afraid of, of potent consequences as you suffered now for many years. How do we break the fear? How do you get Putin to a point where actually he's more afraid of carrying on this war or the consequences of doing so than, than carrying on? Is there a line he won't cross? Well, I, I think I, th I think you've touched on the on the key issue, which is I don't think that we're ever going to convince Putin to change his course because he's a person who only knows how to escalate. He can never back down. Back down. Backing down shows weakness. He just can't do that. But the one thing we can do, and this is really important, is that you say that, and and you're absolutely right that that the Russians are scared of him, and so the best thing we can do is to show Putin to the Russians to be the weak man that he really is. And the way that we do that is by doing everything possible to have the Ukrainians beat him in this war. If, he show, if he's shown to be a loser to the Russian people, they'll take care of him themselves. That 90% number that you talked about, there'll be 90% people uh, who are not afraid of him anymore, but will be angry with him and not want him in there. And he can arrest one or 10 or 100 or 1,000 opposition right. leaders, but he can't arrest 10 million people if they stand up to him. And that's that's got to be our strategy is is to do everything possible for the Ukrainians to win this war, to show Putin to be a loser. Turn Ukraine's fight for survival into a Putin fight for survival. And I guess weaponry is the way to go. That's the message. Indeed. Bill, great to chat to you as always. And a very thought-provoking book, I think, particularly at this moment. Bill Browder, the CEO and co-founder of Hermitage Capital Management and the author of the new book, Freezing Order. Great to chat to you. All right, still to come. Prosecuting President Putin. One expert's calling for a new tribunal to make President Putin pay for the war in Ukraine. The question is how. Stay with us. Welcome back. As the war continues and more atrocities are uncovered, there are growing calls to pursue war crimes against Russian President Vladimir Putin. Currently, investigations are underway at the International Criminal Court, the European Court of Human Rights and the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Well, earlier today, the president of the European Council, Charles Michel, tweeted from Ukraine, history will not forget the war crimes that have been committed here. There can be no peace without justice. My next guest argues prosecuting for war crimes risks, in his words, letting the main man, Putin, off the hook. Philippe Sanz joins us now. He's the professor of law at the University College London. He's also the author of East West Street on the origins of crimes against humanity and genocide. Philippe, fantastic to have you on the show. I think we have to explain the difference. Thank you. We have to explain the difference between prosecuting for war crimes and prosecuting what you want to see, which is crimes of aggression, because that pushes forward the conversation about requiring a separate tribunal to do so. Just explain the difference and, and why it matters. Sure. 
Sure. Well, I'd be pleased to. I mean, you really need to go back to 1945, to the famous trial at Nuremberg, which prosecuted four international crimes, the old established war crimes, which is basically the conduct of war and armed conflict, methods and means, not targeting civilians. Then it prosecuted two other crimes, crimes against humanity, protection of individuals, and genocide, protection of groups. But there was a fourth crime, which was really the central crime at Nuremberg, and it was called Crimes Against Peace. Today it's called Crime of Aggression. And it's the decision to wage an illegal war. And that is the one that I have focused on and now many others are focusing on because it's the only way to get, if you like, to the top table. It's a leadership crime and it brings into the frame that small group of people who decided to wage the war and continue the war, a war which is, in my view, manifestly illegal. So it's not about the definition of war crimes and whether or not Russia or Putin himself is perpetrating war crimes. It's about how best to use the laws that exist or those that don't, probably to be more clear, to tackle Putin himself. Well, uh, well I mean, the real issue, what's, what's in train, as you've described, is the investigation of war crimes and crimes against humanity, and some are now uh, addressing the issue of genocide, is in hand. The prosecutors in Ukraine, in other countries, at the International Criminal Court, are all now actively investigating how the war has been conducted. The central issue, though, is that none of these crimes would have been committed if this war had not been started. And and that is the same situation as pertained at Nuremberg. So the question is really, how do you get to the people who are most responsible? You can, of course, argue that the war crimes, the crimes against humanity, are the responsibility of Mr. Putin and the people immediately around him. But proving that is pretty tough, and it will take a long time, even if you can do it. The much more straightforward approach is the crime of aggression, the decision to go to war. That's a small group of people. The evidence is reasonably clear. It can be up and running pretty quickly. And you're absolutely certain to get to the top table. That's the difference. How likely is it that we see a separate tribunal agreed to? Well, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction over war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide, if it's been committed, on the territory of Ukraine. It does not have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression. The crime of aggression exists in Ukrainian law and in international law, but there's no mechanism for delivering it. And so the proposal is to create a special instance which effectively delegates the law of Ukraine on the crime of aggression to an international tribunal that would be specially created, maybe based in The Hague. You need an agreement between Ukraine and either an international organization, the Council of Europe or or the European Union, or an agreement between Ukraine and a a number of countries who support the idea, and there are now some who are calling uh, for this. That can be done pretty quickly. It can be done in a matter of weeks, uh, frankly, and you could have an indictment up and running by the summer, which would not be the case for war crimes and crimes against humanity. How likely is it? Well, um, Julia, that's a matter of political will. If countries want to do it, they can do it. Uh, I'm working with a small group of European countries. Uh, There will be a meeting in Vilnius uh, in Lithuania called by the Prime Minister of Lithuania to address this issue. Uh, And I think one of the big questions is whether countries like France, the UK, Germany, the US will want to support it or just remain neutral. You you wrote an op-ed in the nation and I put out a quote from it that that you wrote the international rule of law is a fragile creature those who have a semi-detached relationship to it including the United States are perhaps not best placed to invoke it 
for the crimes of others. And it goes to your point about the political will and perhaps the fear of creating a precedent here for nations like the UK, like the United States for France, and I could name many others, that perhaps their own actions come back to haunt them and someone decides they want to prosecute them for it. That's what's potentially going to stop this. You're absolutely right to put the focus on this. Um, The elephant in the room, so to speak, is, of course, Iraq. Uh, Most people think that war was illegal, and, of course, no special tribunal was created for that. And there is, I think, a certain nervousness, particularly in Washington and London. Uh, If you're going to create a special tribunal to deal with Russia, a permanent member of the Security Council, today, then why not us tomorrow? Perhaps not in relation to past actions like Iraq, but in relation to future actions. And that's what I think is concentrating minds, particularly uh, in Paris, London and Washington. A precedent would be uh, created. I think it's worth creating that precedent. It's based on Nuremberg. The countries we have just mentioned all supported the creation of the Nuremberg uh, Tribunal. And the central question is whether international law, international criminal law is only for others or is to be applied to everyone. My hope is these countries will end up supporting it the proposal and treat this like a special case i mean the hope i guess is the ultimate aim is some degree of accountability um for the ukrainians and for what they're going through at this moment um, and the boost of morale but in russia and i think this is the for me also a critical point the hope that would be it would be like nuremberg that perhaps faced with the prospect of this some russians peel away from putin recognising what might be coming. Indeed. I mean, you're right. I mean, it it, it is difficult. There is going to be um, hesitation. But one of my concerns is that we find ourselves in a situation three or four years down the line where there are proceedings, trials in The Hague, and you find some sort of mid-level military types hauled up for war crimes or crimes against humanity or maybe even genocide, although I think that's tough uh, to prove. But the people at the top table, Mr. Putin, Mr. Lavrov, those who participated in this decision, the military, the intelligence folks, the finances, somehow get off the hook. I think that would be a deplorable uh, situation. And so you've got to look at the alternative uh, approach. And I think this is the only way to go if you want to address um, that kind of issue. It's difficult to do, but it's not Um, impossible to do. I don't think anyone wants to leave the top table people off the hook. Yes, very quickly, Philippe, because I have 30 seconds. How quickly could this be done in an ideal world compared to the several years that may not actually get to Putin if you go the traditional route of of prosecuting war crimes? How quickly could this be done in an ideal world? I I think in an ideal world, you can have a tribunal up and running within three months and you can have an indictment following within a couple of months after that. And therein lies the key. Philippe, great to chat to you. Thank you so much. We'll speak to you again soon, I hope. Philippe Sands, Professor of Law at University College London and author of the book East West Street. Now coming up, a new source of financial support, how Ukraine is using crypto as a tool of war to help itself. Next. Welcome back. The U.S. is preparing another $800 million in military aid for Ukraine as the international community continues to raise money to support the country. More than $16 billion has been provided to date, that according to the Kiel Institute for the World Economy. 
But the Ukrainian government's also finding unique ways to help itself, including swiftly raising and distributing tens of millions of dollars via crypto. And they currently accept 14 different currencies. I spoke to IMF chief Kristalina Georgieva and Bank for International Settlements head Augustine Carstens about the risks and benefits of digital money in a time of crisis. The uh, Ukrainian authorities were fans of digital currency before the war, so they have done quite a lot of work. They're looking into central bank digital currency. Uh, It is not a new topic. Uh, They see the uh, need of their people to allow the use of digital channels to send aid to Ukrainians, and that has been really successful. Low cost, fast, gets to people who need it, can be deployed uh, immediately to, to support families. But let's be clear, in terms of size, in comparison to the more traditional forms and channels, um, it is relatively small. Our data shows something in the order of perhaps 100 million. This is not nothing, but just to give you a perspective, we have provided $1.4 billion emergency financing to Ukraine. So uh, it is useful. There are, however, two issues that came uh, across. One, that because of the demand in Ukraine and the difficulties in Ukraine, it looks like maybe pricing has been a bit higher than on average. So if you want to bring down cost, that was not fully achieved. And two, there have been some scams, uh, unfortunately. We know that in the digital space, there is a segment that is of wrongdoing. Uh, luckily, in, the, in this case, on a very small, uh, in a very small scale. Uh, more interesting is uh, how Ukraine is thinking of its future. And I am very impressed, even under the incredible hardship of war, that the thinking there is to have standards and and, uh, wallets that are regulated so there can be safety and trust uh, for the users of digital money. And I wish the uh, Ukrainian authorities all the very best in pursuing this longer term uh, trajectory. Yeah, and you raise a great point. That the deputy digital minister's point with me certainly was that he believed crypto could be a, a swift way of raising money and, and distributing it. But the point about scams, I think, and we've all seen those as a, as a, a hot topic and a highly valid point. Uh, Augustine, come in here too, because I think there's two points raised here. One, perhaps the ability of a central bank digital coin of the future to get money to people very quickly in a crisis or in an emergency situation, or even those that have had to flee across borders, perhaps, too. Your views on what we've seen and perhaps what we might see in the future? Well, uh, thank you very much. In general, I, I, fully, I fully share the views expressed by Cristalina. Uh, uh, the problem, I mean, yes, uh, crypto, different cryptocurrencies can be a way to send money right now to exchange money in, in, in the Ukraine, but the limitations that are well known of crypto assets uh, are showing up there. Scams, pricing, volatility, and so on. Uh, now, this this also helped us imagine a world in which a CBDC were present. And uh, I mean, it's obvious that the distribution of bills 
uh, in the country uh, is completely disrupted in time of a war. That problem probably would not have happened uh, or wouldn't have happened uh, uh, if we had CBDC. CBDC could still be working, and therefore many of the problems that are faced now would probably not exist. I have family in Kharkiv, the second largest Ukrainian city. And as you would imagine, it has become really difficult to rely on the banking system uh, to withdraw money from a bank. But Internet is functioning 24-7, and in fact, more of the monetary transactions are done using the oldest form of digital money, e-money. In other words, transactions that are done computer to, uh, to computer. Uh, so uh, we have to think about the world of digital money also as adding resilience. Uh, and we know from the case of the Bahamas that their sand dollar served them extremely well at the time of a hurricane when connections uh, were only based on internet and not on physical uh, movements. Coming up, a Netflix nightmare. The streaming service suffering a post-lockdown letdown with subscription growth falling sharply. Call it a Stranger Things stunner or perhaps a Bridgerton too far. Details next. Welcome back to a mixed day on global markets with one high-profile stock breaking bad. I'll explain. The Dow is advancing, but tech is softer after Tuesday's 2% rally. Europe, as you can see, mostly higher. The FTSE in the UK, the underperformer. IBM overall, though, a big winner, up more than 5% after an earnings and revenue beat. Results coming in solid, even as the company takes a sales hit from its exit from Russia. You're going to see more and more of that. Consumer products giant Procter & Gamble higher, too, after raising guidance. Consumers still spending for its products, even as prices rise. And later this session, Tesla reports its first quarter results. But all stock stories today pale in comparison to that of Netflix. Shares of the streaming giant losing more than a quarter of its value. Wow, take a look at that. Netflix reporting its first quarterly subscription drop in years and warning of an even grimmer performance this quarter too. Netflix now vowing to clamp down on password sharing. It also is open to a lower priced advertising supported subscription tier. Netflix's future seems once as sparkly as an episode of Emily in Paris. Today, it's looking like something out of a dystopian drama, Squid Game. Paula Monica joins me now. Paul, my favourite of all of those. Kudos to David, one of my writers there. A Bridgerton too far, said yes. with a British accent. I can account for the subscription loss in that quarter with Russia and the 700,000 people that they lost there. But the forecast for losing 2 million this quarter, Paul, what do we think is going on here? It's sort of peak, peak subscription on steroids. Yeah, exactly. I, I tweeted last night uh, a Bridgerton over troubled water. So going to one up oh, David on that well one. Done, but I agree that what you have right now, Julia, is a combination of Consumers are fatigued, I think, with all the streaming options that are out there and an environment of rising inflation. Everything is more expensive. Cutting back on streaming services is a natural thing to potentially do if you're worried about when you go to the grocery store or order groceries online and how much more expensive 
everything that you need to eat and live on a daily basis, which is not Netflix exactly, uh, you know, is rising and going higher. So I think that is potentially a problem. And then that crackdown on password sharing is also likely to hurt Netflix because it shows that there aren't really as many paying consumers as Netflix would like. A hundred million people potentially that are sharing passwords. Even if you could just monetize that a little bit, as they said, look, it wasn't a focus when we were in this crazy growth stage, but now they're going to focus on it. I mean, that is a monetizable solution perhaps, but it's not the be all and end all, Paul. What else can they do? Well, there's two things, Julia. One, charging people for sharing passwords could be a problem because you could have people basically decide and say, hey, you know what? It was fun while it lasted. I don't want to pay for it. But then there's also the advertising conundrum. Reed Hastings, who has long said that he does not want ads on Netflix, finally said during the conference call yesterday that he would consider having ads for Netflix subscribers. And that then begs the question, what kind of rates do you charge? Are you able to use the official numbers to say to advertisers, we have this many million subscribers? Or do you try and cheat and say, hey, you know what? We actually have more people than we officially count because of all of these people sharing passwords. So we're going to charge you ad rates based on that. I don't think many Fortune 500 companies would want to pay higher ad rates for phantom password sharing people, they're going to go probably by the official subscriber counts. And that's obviously not great news for Netflix at a time where subscribers are now apparently going down. Yeah. App attack. Have you pruned your apps? I haven't yet, partly because I'm lazy, but I definitely am streaming less. But I think that's more about having two crazy children at home than (laughs) any uh, worries about costs, at least for me. There's more to come. That's the argument there, I think. And I agree. Paula Monica, great to chat to you, as always. Now there's a tie from this to our and finally on first move. A return to work survey claims the worker bees are nearly twice as likely to be back full time than their bosses. That's according to an international poll from Slack's Future Forum. Now, while 35% of workers say they've returned to the office full time, only 19% of bosses can say the same. And that disconnect... Well, it's driving discontent. Workers who don't have a flexible schedule are three times more likely to look for a new job in the next 12 months. Let that be a warning. That's it for the show. Stay with CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.